named Martin Kerrigan uh, slipped off a wharf and he fell into uh, the Prairie River in Canada. Fell right into it. And at least a dozen different adults saw him struggle for a few minutes in the water before he sank and drowned. So the question is, is why didn't anyone save him? Why didn't anyone jump down in there and save him? Well, just upriver, a plant used to dump raw sewage right into the river during this time. The water was dirty, it was disgusting, and it was even dangerous to your health. So nobody jumped in to save poor little Martin Kerrigan. Now, I heard this story, and it reminded me in my weird mind of something that my mom used to do when I was little. I grew up on a, the opening of a river from, from Lake Superior to Lake Huron in northern Michigan where, where uh, they were connected by a river called the St. Mary's River. And I grew up right where Lake Superior kind of entered into the St. Mary's River. And it was a little kid's like dreamland, a little boy's dreamland for growing up. Uh, there was, there was um, you could see Canada from my bedroom window. Uh, there was no raw sewage though. Uh, me and my friends, we were always outside, either in the water, swimming, building rafts, kayaking, uh, or we were in the swamps of the other area where there were uh, beaver dams and just mud that was like up to our chest. We were cheating death at every moment of our childhood, right? And so needless to say, I was always a little bit messy. So the rule was is that as soon as I got back to my house, and even if I had friends with me, they had to do it too, we had to stand outside on the back porch, and we had to strip. Like, we had to just take everything off. Literally, I had to take all my clothes off, down to my skivvies, and then, and only then, was I allowed to come into the house and go straight into the shower. Right? My mom had absolutely no desire to get involved with whatever mess that I had gotten myself into. And isn't this just like most of us here today? Right? We just don't want to get involved in other people's messes. And so we, we say things like this, Foundry Church. Right? Uh, you, you made your bed, so you have to what? Lie in it. Right? Not my circus, not my... My monkeys, right? We don't want to just get involved in the mess. But listen, here's the truth. I'm not going to blow anyone's mind here. We all have messes, right? Don't we? We all have a mess. We all have uh, things in our life that get a little dirty, that get a little messy, or even they get really, really, really messy. And it can feel like we're on our own, that we're by ourselves, uh, that we just kind of have to plow through the mud, that we have to try to try to clean up and get everything situated before anyone else sees the mess that we're in. And it sees the mess that we're, we're covered in, that we're surrounded in. Anyway, we don't uh, want to get involved in anyone else's mess, but even more than that, we don't want anyone else to see the mess that our lives are. The mess that we have. Which can make us feel like, uh, like our entire life is just a big mess. And that there's no way out of the swamp, or no way out of the mud, no way out of the river, or however we want to put it. That we're all alone, like that kid in the river. And so if we're honest, 
right? If we have some authenticity, those messes can seem, well, messier around the holidays, around the, the Christmas season, because the truth is this, Foundry Church, look at this, all is not merry and bright, right? I mean, we're just honest, right? All is not merry and bright, right? To some, the, the season may genuinely feel like the most wonderful time of the year, but a lot of us know, a lot of us know that deep down, Foundry Church, deep down, that all is not merry and bright in this world, let alone in us, right? Some, some people have that special skill that allows them to keep kind of, you, you know these people, right? we're, we're these people, and we have this special skill that keeps, uh, keeps us rehearsing Christmas even in hard seasons of life. Like we can just go through the motions and, and seem unfazed by what, whatever mess we're in. But for others, all the talk of joy and the merriment of Christmas can make our sorrows feel all that more prevalent, all more that, that real. Our, our pains are more painful when we start talking about joy and, and merry and gladness. So we think normal life, man, it's, it's hard enough. The do's and the tasks. It's even harder when all the world seems to be singing and ringing bells and pretending. Everything is suddenly merry and okay. Right? We, we, the, the pressure to feel the joy of Christmas in Foundry Church can sometimes make joy all the more difficult. And it can leave us full of doubts. It can leave us with full of uh, questions, doubts that sound uh, like this. It might sound like this. My life is a mess. Uh, why should I celebrate when everything around me uh, looks bad? Or maybe it sounds like this. I I've been in this muddy pit of a life for so long. Uh, why would I be happy about a God who seems to have forgotten me in my mess? Or maybe it sounds like this, right? No, no words at all, nothing, no words at all, but rather just a, a broken and angry heart, right? Well, what is, what is so good about Christmas and celebrating uh, God and forging our life on God when my life is a mess and no one seems to care, seems to jump into the river and help me. And so here's the onion, Foundry Church, that we need to peel this morning. Where is God in the mess? Where, where, where is God in the mess? Now, we, we've started this series of sermons last week where we, 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 we kicked it off and we called this series of sermons Go Tell It on the Mountain. And we've been talking and we're going to be looking at the different messages that God has for all of us at Christmas, at this Christmas season. Believe it or not, God has a message for those of us who are in this mess and those of us who have the doubts because we're in this mess during the season. Right? God has a, a message for those of us walking where he is in this mess that we call life. So, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, to the book of, of Matthew. And we're going to be in the very first chapter. Right? The book of Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bibles 
that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those Bibles with you to have, to use, to take, and to uh, give away. They're for you. Matthew is in the New Testament, right at the beginning of the New Testament. It's the very first book, and that's where we're going to be today. All right, now as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. The book of Matthew was written by one of Jesus' disciples, and, and you guessed it, Matthew. Right? Matthew wrote this book, and Matthew, you may not know, he was a tax collector, and this tells us a few things about him. A tax collector of that day would have known both Greek, like known Greek, the language, really well. He would have been able to write and to read, and he would have had to have been a well-organized man. Now, some scholars, some scholars believe that Matthew was what we would call the, the recorder, right? The recorder, the, the record maker among the disciples. And he took notes of Jesus's teaching. Now, one commentary that I read for today even put it this way. He said this, we might say that Matthew followed Jesus. He left everything behind, right? We, we know that. We've read that story. He left everything except his pen and his paper. He, he, he's like Jeremy when we went to man camp, right? Jeremy had his little notebook, and he was making notes to improve for next year, right? He was recording all of our, all of our tasks, all of our things, right? So he's a recorder, right? So that's what Matthew is. Now, we also know that Matthew was Jewish. He would have been, he would have been uh, hated among his fellow Jews, though, right? Because the Jews hated the members of their, their own race who had entered the civil service of their conquerors, the Romans, right? So Matthew was not just a tax collector. He was a tax collector for the Romans, the occupying group. So it sounds kind of messy, doesn't it? Sounds a, a little complicated, a little, a little messy, if you will. Right, but this makes Matthew uniquely equipped to write an account of Jesus' life for his people. And he, he has been both an insider, and he's a disciple of Jesus, and he's also been an outsider of the Jews and knows that they need to know about this Messiah, the one who came, Jesus. Right, this is why Matthew begins with a genealogy in his book. If you look right there in the first chapter. It's a genealogy of Jesus, of his life, connecting him directly to the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. Right? This would have made the Jewish people pay attention and wonder, what's so amazing about this man, Jesus' life? Right? Why is he connected to our patriarch? Why is he connected to Abraham? So let's pick up right after the geology. Genealogy, there we go, of, of Jesus in verse 18 of Matthew. All right? So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a what? Just man. Underline that if you want. 
and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I just want to, I want to stop there for just a few seconds and kind of explain a few things. First, let's talk about the word betrothal, right? And there was essentially three steps to marriage in the Jewish world of Jesus' time. There was engagement. This could happen when the bride and groom were, were quite young. It was often arranged by the parents. And then next comes the betrothal, right? This, this made the previous engagement official and binding, right? During, during the, the time of betrothal, this couple were known as husband and wife. It was like a legal contract, and betrothal could only be broken by divorce, right? That is why in verse 19, uh, Joseph is called Mary's husband, even though they aren't married yet, right? Then the, the final step, right, the third step is the marriage, the, the covenant between this man and wife and God, right? So, but Mary and Joseph, they're still in that betrothal phase, in that, in that stage. Betrothal typically lasted a year, right? And, and during this year, the groom would return home to his father's house, and he would begin building an addition to the house in which he and his wife would live in. Homes were, were typically one room, 15 foot by 15 foot, and they were multi-purpose, where the, the kitchen and the dining room, living room, and the bedroom were all in the same space. We've, we've seen movies, right? We know what we're talking about. Joseph, like every other betrothed man, would build his home in the evenings after his regular work hours. All right, follow along with that, right? And so, so Joseph, Joseph, he's been at work all day uh, for, for months. And then he comes home, he's preparing a place to live for his, his new bride. And certainly in that process of swinging hammers, in that process, he's dreaming about married life together with Mary. And of course, starting a family. And this is important because these things that we read happen to real people. Right? To, to real people. Joseph, a real man, poured himself into building a house for his wife and for his future family. I mean, have you ever tried to put together an Ikea TV stand? Right? right? I mean, Christine and I first got married. It was like our apartment was uh, uh, like ripped out of a catalog from Ikea, right? Listen, right, there's more than a few times that I wanted to quit and just put the TV on the, the box that the stand came in and not actually finish putting together the stand. And then Christina decided to help, and she put the whole thing on backwards, right? Can you imagine, can you imagine having to build the house, right? And, and that's what Joseph did. Listen, there, there's a reason this betrothal period lasted a year, right? It takes a lot longer to build a whole house than just a TV stand from Ikea. And, and so Joseph, he, he's tired. He, ha he has come home every night and he's worked as much as he could on a home for them, for their future family. He has promised himself to marry and no doubt has dreamt of their future together while he put the hammer to the nail and did work. And then the whole thing comes toppling down, doesn't it? Right? It's just one giant mess. Mary is pregnant and the baby isn't his. Right? Joseph, Joseph was a good guy. 
right? Well, it says so right there. We just read it. And when you want to do right by God, you don't expect things to go wrong, do you? Right? This, this was the expectation of the Jews in Jesus' day, too. If you are faithful and you're obedient, God will bless you relationally, materially, and financially. And that included sparing you from pain and suffering. Right? So, so you, can, you can imagine that Joseph had uh, this expectation. His engagement would go like all of his other friends and family members' engagements. Smoothly. With a finished house. Right, and the furniture put together correctly from Ikea. Right, Joseph and Mary would be, would be married. They would get pregnant. They would have a child. His life would be, be filled with joy. He would just hit all those steps with no issue. Instead, he got engaged and Mary got pregnant without Joseph. Can you imagine the pain? I mean, think about that. Can you imagine the betrayal? Can you imagine the heartbreak? Can you imagine... The frustration. Can you imagine the mess? Oh, the mess. Right, though Joseph never says a word in our Bible, I'm sure there were more than a few cries of anger and frustration to God. Where are you? Why am I in this mess? Where are you in this mess? God, where are you? And so let's keep reading. Let's look at the next two verses. All right, follow along with me. Verses 20 through 21. It says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, and then underline this, for he will save his people from their sins. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 20 starts by saying, Joseph, right, considered these things, which in the original Greek can be translated two ways. We kind of cleaned it up here in the English. First, it could mean that he literally pondered what to do, like what is his next step? But the second meaning is he became very, very upset because we get this translation, we get this definition from the only other time that this word, this, this phrase is used in the New Testament. And it's in Luke's gospel story of the wise men. And when, when, when Herod was enraged, this is the same phrase, he's enraged after discovering that the wise men left Bethlehem without informing him where Jesus the child was at. It's the same feeling, the same phrase, the anger and the frustration right, that, that Herod had is saying that Joseph had. Kenneth Bailey, a commentator, suggests that the more accurate translation might be, while he, Joseph, fumed over this matter. Right, that, that's what we should have there. He, Joseph, fumed. Steam coming out of the ears and the nose. Frustrated, angry, fist on the table, fumed over this matter, maybe broke something in the new house, right? Joseph was mad, and he went to bed mad. He was angry, and I point this out because it's important. You see, 
God, get this, right? God chose Joseph for his role. God chose Joseph for what character, this, this role in this story, in, in history, just as he chose Mary for hers. But God, last week, he dealt with them differently, right? God could have told them both in advance about Jesus. You ever thought, think of that, right? He could have told them in advance about Jesus, but he didn't. He, he informed Mary, but not Joseph. Then God allowed what must have been a pretty awkward conversation to happen between Mary and Joseph. Right At that point, Joseph faced a very painful decision, and God did not rescue him from it immediately. Think about that. He allowed Joseph to struggle in grief and bewilderment for a time to sit in the poop river. God allowed the mess. God allowed Joseph, who was, what, what did we underline in that very first passage we read? A just man. God allowed a just man, as it says, to try to take the best decision that he could, to make that best decision, one he believed was both just and merciful. All right, but it turned out to be the wrong one because God was doing far more abundantly than Joseph could ask or imagine. And that is when God, our God, the God that we, we serve today and forge our life on today, full of mercy and grace, intervened. He gently corrected Joseph and gave him the guidance he needed in a dream through an angel. He said, you can marry Mary because she is going to have a son who you will name Jesus. Because why? He will save his people from their sin. He will save his people from their sins. God, through an angel, says to Joseph, I know you think this is a mess. But listen, I am sending my son to save people from the messes of this world. You see, more significant than Joseph's pain is the pain of sin and suffering and ruin for which Jesus came to save us from. Right? And every Jew would have agreed that God's people needed saving from Roman occupation and, and dominion during that time, especially. But the angel's announcement to Joseph didn't even mention Rome. It didn't even mention their current saving need. Right? God's people indeed needed saving from their sins, from the darkness and corruption within them. And we, Foundry Church, today are no different. Right? If we weren't in a mess already, there would have been no need for Christmas. Christ, Christ did not come to put on a show or make a cameo in history. He came to bring life to the dead. Get that, Foundry Church. Right? Rescue to the perishing to heal the sick, to destroy the works of the devil, to join us in the mess. And we know this because the angel went on to say this in verses 22 through 23. Let's look at it together. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
They shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus will be Emmanuel. Jesus will be God, the God we forge our life on with us. Now, I, I love this so much. I love this so much because it could be so different, right? It could be so different. The angel could have said, Emmanuel, which means God for us. Right? The, the angel could have said that. Right? The, the Jewish people would have understood that language. God was always for Israel. Whenever there was a battle, the co commander would say, our God will fight for us. Right? That, that was the last thing the commanders, the generals of Israel in the Old Testament would say before they entered into a battle. Our God will fight for us. So, so they would have understood that. If it was Emmanuel, God God for us. You find Joseph, and you find Joshua, and Moses, Nehemiah, and others using that phrase. But that's not what the angel said. The angel could have said, all right, Emmanuel, God in us. Right? Yes, and that, that would happen, but not until Jesus leaves after his death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, right, he says one day God will be in all those who have called upon him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that is not this day. No, the angel said, Emmanuel, God with us. Right? Emmanuel would take on flesh. Emmanuel would feel pain, is what he's saying. Emmanuel would know loneliness and sorrow. Emmanuel is going to get messy. So, so lean in here, Foundry Church. Grab a hold of this, right? I'm preaching here. Right? Hebrews 4.15 says this when describing Jesus. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. No, no. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Man. That's our God. Emmanuel, God with us. The infinite became an infant. The all-knowing one became a babbling baby. As one song puts it, the author climbed inside of the page. God came to us because we never would have come to him. We never could have come to him on our own power. But God didn't just come to us. He became one of us. Jesus was not only Emmanuel, God with us. He was us. So do we want to know where God is in the mess? Our question, right? The onion we want to peel. Do we want to know where God is in the mess? He's right there with you. He's in it. Right? He's with you. Right? right? Our mess of life that we feel like we're living has one thing going for it. Jesus is with you in it. Jesus descended from heaven for a purpose. This was humility on a mission. You see, Jesus was born to die. And you know that. The extent of, the, of his people's rebellion was matched and surpassed only by the extent of his final sacrifice of going to the cross. And in doing so, showed us the very heart of love, Foundry, his own and his father's. Because Romans chapter 5 verse 8 puts it like this. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners. Christ 
right? Our king died for us. The magic of Christmas is not that everything is merry and bright and that there is no mess. Let's not put up a facade. The magic of Christmas is not that God himself came for heaven, from heaven to be a man, right? And it's not even that, that, even that he just came to die, right? Those are all powerful things. But the magic is that he came down and he did all of that to rescue us. He came down to rescue us from sin and to restore us to the final joy for which we were made, to know and to enjoy him, to forge our life on him for all of eternity and to guide others to do the same. Right, He came to reconcile us. He did not come to supply us with bells and whistles of a commercial Christmas, but he suffered once for our sins, it says. The, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God the Father for all of eternity. He came to join us in the mess and to clean it up. He's a sweet street sweeper. He came to lead us home. By cleaning the street with us. The message God has for those uh, wondering where God is in the mess is simple. It's this. It's follow me. Forge a lifelong reliance on me. Every day of your life. Right? That's what Joseph did. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 1 again. Verses 24 through 25. Because that's exactly what Joseph did. When Joseph awoke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And he called his name Jesus. As soon as Joseph heard the plan of God to save his people, he woke up and he followed God from the top to the bottom of his life. He did the hard thing. He did the right thing. He put the hammer down on the anvil and went to work. As soon as Joseph heard the plan, he did it. He woke up and he said, this may look like a complete mess to the rest of the world. Right? And then sometimes I still feel like it. I'm sure he said, thought that. But God is with me. He has a plan. And I'm going to follow him. May we be so bold on this church. May we be as bold as Joseph. As the, the band comes up, I have one last story. I recently reread all the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And you, if you've never read them, you've been putting it off for years, do it. You should read them. Read them with your kids. In the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, Lucy, one of the main characters, her brother Edmund, and their cousin Eustace are taken to Narnia where the, the Christ figure in the novels is a lion named Aslan, right? And the, the three of them, they go on this voyage, and they come to the island where dreams come true. And as they get closer, they start to realize that this is where also nightmares come true. Right? The, the, the ship's crew, everybody on the boat, is overcome by fear, and they begin to row in the darkness wildly. With no direction, no purpose, as each sailor hears a different terrifying noise. There's like the noise of huge scissors coming for them because they're mad. Or, or enemies crawling up the sides of the ships and, and big gongs, uh, noises that they don't know, and they're scared. And so what does Lucy, this little girl, what does she do? She prays. She says this. She says, Aslan, Aslan. 
if you ever loved us at all, send us help now. Now, she prayed that, and then the darkness, it did not grow any less. It's still there. It even intensified a little bit. But, but she began to feel a little, as it says, a very, very little, as, it, as C.S. Lewis writes, a bit better in his English way. And he says this, Lucy says this, after all, she thinks this to herself, after all, nothing has really happened yet. Start to feel a little better. Nothing has really happened. A ray of light eventually falls on the ship, and Lucy sees something in it like a cross. And she looks, and she focuses her eyes, and it's an albatross. The albatross, this big bird, circles them three times. It lands on their mast and then flies ahead of them, leading their ship out of this darkness. But no one except Lucy knew that this albatross circled the mast. It had whispered something to her. It, it said this, courage, dear heart, courage. And, and that whisper in your ear, it was Aslan's voice. Right? Isn't that the heart of our father, of the God that we forge our life on, Foundry Church? Who, uh, our father who said to Joseph all those years ago, have courage, be bold. Step into the mess, get married, have the baby. He's going to lead his people to salvation. Have courage, Foundry Church. Follow God. He's with you in the, in the darkness. He's with you in the mess. Forge a lifelong reliance on him.